0: Have you ever seen those adorable and hardworking guide dogs helping the blind and visually impaired lead independent lives? Have you ever wondered what it takes for a pooch to become a guide dog? And how do people in need find a guide dog? According to the National Federation for the Blind, in 2016, there were more than 7,675,000 visually impaired uh, Americans. And Guide Dogs for the Blind raises and trains guide dogs for many of those people in need. Today, my guest is Guide Dogs for the Blind CEO and President, Christine Benninger, who will be talking all about Guide Dogs uh, with me, about um, the Guide Dogs for the Blind's mission, their programs, how puppies become guide dogs, how people interested in guide dogs get, uh, get matched up with them, and on and on and on. So don't go anywhere. Matthew Felix on air starts now. Welcome to Matthew Felix On Air, people who create, people who make a difference, coming to you from WordSpace Studios in San Francisco, California. Happy gay Pride. San Francisco has been overtaken by revelers, as it is every year at this time. And Pride is also happening in New York City, where it's the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. And according to Wikipedia, quote, the Stonewall riots were a series of spontaneous, violent demonstrations by members of the LGBT or gay community against a police raid that began in the early morning hours of June 8th, uh, June 28th, 1969 at the Stonewall Inn in the Greenwich Village neighborhood of Manhattan. They are widely considered to constitute the most important event leading to the gay liberation movement and the modern fight for LGBT rights in the United States a huge milestone obviously amidst so many others that have happened over the last 50 years so much so much other progress and continues to happen and although at the same time much remains to be done uh while we were celebrating in san francisco and in new york in istanbul today uh the the celebrations were disrupted by tear gas so we have a lot to celebrate a lot of progress but clearly not only not only abroad but also at home there's a lot more to be done so Uh, Good to keep that perspective, but again, happy pride for everyone who is celebrating, and thanks also to all those, the people involved in Stonewall, and everyone since who has helped to um, further the movement, and to those who are continuing, continuing to do so speaking of pride uh, a very different kind of pride a more focused on me sort of pride i was uh, very happy this week that uh, my new book my latest book porcelain travels went back up to number one in its uh, amazon categories so that's travel humor i think it also went to number one in budget travel and uh, was near the top in some of the other travel categories so i want to say thank you very much to any and all of you who might have uh, helped get the book back on top it's obviously so important just for marketing and exposure and just to, to keep the momentum up. And so I was really excited and I really appreciate that. I was also, uh, just in the interest of a little more self-promotion. I was, I I was kind of kind of beside myself this week when I unexpectedly got a, um, a review back from Publishers Weekly's book life prize, um, uh, competition for 2019. So I wrote my novel a couple years ago. Um, but when I, but it's sort of undergoing a, a second life. So it was just included in the creative process uh, exhibition, which I mentioned before, which is going to 40 leading universities uh, around the world. And I'm planning a workshop based on the book about intuition that I'll be doing in the fall. And then the audiobook version is coming out in the fall. So I decided to enter in this contest, not really expecting much, and certainly, like I said, I didn't expect to get the review back yet. Well. Uh, it really sort of blew me away and I was really, it just made my week. And so I'm going to read a a quote here from the review. And, uh, the quote is, uh, the reviewers for the book, like prize called it quote, a highly crafted gem, which just really moved me. Uh, Felix's expressive pose invites readers into Pablo's worldview that remains fascinating throughout the novel, keeps pages turning with its enchanting prose and cast of characters. So part of the reason I'm sharing that is, um, Again, because I'm, I'm sort of trying to fuel that fire of getting the book out there in this second round. But also, you know, it's interesting because in our day-to-day lives, we try not to worry about what other people think and just to kind of, um, again, not, not pay much, that much attention to that. But as a writer and as creative people, it actually matters. You know, our success is often dependent on these reviews and, and the feedback that we get. So given that this is the second wave for the book uh, to get that review, like I said, it really, really just made my week. And so I wanted to share that uh so go check out a voice beyond reason it's on sale actually for the rest of the day i think tomorrow it goes back up to its normal price of 6.99 but the ebook is 2.99 for the rest of the day so now's your time uh to get that copy get a copy of that okay no show next week and no show in fact uh, no new shows in fact for july or august because i am going on a summer hiatus so that i can can take care of a lot of behind the scenes stuff that I can't do uh, when I'm producing the show on a, on a weekly basis and I need to do that now in part because fall is going to be very busy um, starting with a lit wings event that I'll be doing in September and I'm really excited about this this event because rather than uh, present about my writing which is what I just did at the lit wings event that I did in April in Paris uh, I've been asked to talk about this show and uh, I was surprised when when Aaron uh, Aaron Byrne, the, the, the organizer of Lit Wings and, and dear friend and fellow writer, asked me to be the filmmaker at the Lit Wings. Club. And I said, well, I don't I don't I don't make film. And she said, yeah, but your podcast. So uh, I thought, "Ah, OK, I guess that counts. So it's going to be interesting to get the opportunity to talk about what goes into this, you know, um, what I've learned along the way and that sort of thing. I will be presenting with two other former guests of this show uh, best selling mystery author Cara Black, who has her own new book out, Murder in Bel Air, and Ernest White II, who was also at the Paris event, um, who has a new show called Fly Brother that is debuting nationwide on PBS in January. And like I said, Ernest was just on the show, I don't know, three or four weeks ago in a, a two part show. Um, so, anyway, long story, not so short, that'll be a great event in September. And thanks again to Aaron Byrne, Litwings founder and writer. For inviting me to participate. Last week, I was also thrilled to be invited to participate in three Litquake events in October, and then I have some other events in the work as well. Point being, I really need to take some time off to catch my breath, regroup, and plan for the fall, which is sap- shaping up to be a really exciting time. Okay. Enough about me, enough about all that, enough about the future, let's get to the present. And presently, after this quick message from my host and sponsor, Wordspace Studios, we'll be back to talk with Guide Dogs for the Blind CEO and President Chris Benninger. A quick thanks to Wordspace Studios in San Francisco for sponsoring Matthew Felix on Air. Wordspace's mission is to bring together writers and thinkers of all ages and experiences wordspace will soon be offering creative writing workshops a literary book club and guided writing groups and workspace is already offering writing residencies they are submission based and they provide writers with room and board for up to one month to find out more you can email info at wordspacestudios.com chris benninger joined guide dogs for the blind in april of 2014 prior to joining guide dogs for the blind chris spent 17 years leading the humane society silicon valley during her tenure there, she and her team helped, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, helped save the lives of tens of thousands of animals and greatly reduce pet overpopulation in Santa Clara County. Under her leadership, the organization was also able to build uh, and raise $25.5 million to build the uh, Animal Community Center, which was the first kind of facility of, of that nature in the country. Chris honed her business skills as an auditor with author Andrew author anderson i've been talking too much about authors arthur anderson maybe he's also an author uh as well as in her 15 years at hewlett packard at hp chris helped manage uh or held managerial positions in the u.s as well as in europe and she has an mba from a little little known school called stanford university chris gives back to the community through her role on the board for not-for-profit not-for-profit wildlife impact which is committing committed i can't talk today i got three hours of sleep so just apologies in advance. It's going to be a long, long hour. Wildlife Impact is committed to protecting the diversity of wildlife and natural habitats throughout the world. And not surprisingly, Chris loves dogs and has four of her own, including Thea, who is here in the audience, or not in the audience. I guess she is in the audience, but she's under the table. And unfortunately, with my three cameras, I can't have Thea on camera. I wish I could, but just know that Thea's here with us. Finn, don't get too jealous. Finn, of course, is my, my career change guide dog that I babysit for all the time. Uh, but anyway, so Chris has Thea, who is a career-changed golden retriever, career-changed golden retriever who now serves as an ambassador for Guide Dogs for the Blind. Welcome, Chris.
1: Thank you, Matthew. It's <laughs> great to be here. <laughs> Woo,
0: thank you for your patience as I stumbled through that intro. <laughs> no problem. Wow. Yeah, I really shouldn't do this on three hours of sleep, but sometimes you just don't have a choice. No, not When you your don't. neighbors decide, as we were talking beforehand, mm-hmm. when your neighbors decide to move early in the morning and forget to tell you, you can't plan for that.
1: No, nope, I can't.
0: Okay, so first off, I can't help but wonder. So Thea is an ambassador for Guide Dogs for the Blind. She is. Is there any chance that she pulled some strings to get that job? (laughs) Because that doesn't seem like a coincidence. I don't know. I mean, I met her. She's very charismatic. But I'm just wondering, did she maybe pull some strings to get that job?
1: Well, I feel very honored. I waited three years. Oh, really? To get Thea. Right. So when I started at Guide Dogs, I told Guide Dogs that I would love to have a golden retriever. Um, but our first responsibility, obviously, is to our clients. Yeah. Um, but then the vast majority of our career change dogs go on to other... If if they're not going to work for Guide Dogs, they either become what's called canine buddies. We're going to talk all about that. Yeah. yeah. Or go on to other careers with other service agencies. Yeah. So I waited three years three for years. her. Yeah. So it was meant to be. It was meant to be. And she's amazing.
0: Okay. I don't doubt it. And my experience thus far of Thea is that she is, in fact, amazing. <laughs> uh, so you spent a lot of your career in the private sector. I did. And so before we get into Guide Dogs for the Blind, can you tell us just a little bit about why you decided to jump over to not-for-profit and specifically mm-hmm. focus on uh, dogs and, and pets in general? Because, again, you were at the Humane Society as right, well. So right. So just a little bit about about that.
1: Yeah. So I was uh, 15 years with Hewlett Packard. I loved HP. HP was good to me. I um, was able to do a lot of different things with HP, including uh, spending three years with them in Europe. Mm
0: -hmm. Where were you in Europe?
1: Um, I was uh, just outside of London, Uh but I was responsible for the European leasing program. So I did lots and lots and lots of travel all through Europe. And I loved it. It yeah. was it was great for three years. It yeah. truly was.
0: And London's a great place to be based or close oh, to London because it's so easy to make the jaunts to the it is. continent. It is. Yeah.
1: And an amazing city. Yeah. Really fun. Really yeah. fun to be in. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't looking for a job. I, I really wasn't. But I was at work late one night and I opened up the Wall Street Journal and they had an ad for the CEO of Humane Society Silicon Valley. I love animals. I decided to apply thinking I'd never get the job, Uh but I just wanted an interview to find out what they were looking for, and I went through a series of interviews. Long story short, they offered me the job. I took it without even knowing what the salary was. Oh, wow. and it was the best decision I ever made. Awesome. Um, it was a job of the heart. Yeah, it, it really sounds like was. I mean, if you
0: took the job without even knowing what the salary was, right? that's a sign that your heart is in it, right? <laughs>
1: My heart was in it. Yeah. And I'm glad I didn't think about it too much because at the time, um, they were having a lot of problems. They were probably... Four months away from closing their doors. Oh, wow. So it was truly sort of an emergency situation, which the board was not very good about letting me know about. Oh. So, (laughs) yikes. So this was really a turnaround gig. And you didn't know that. It was. It was. Yeah. And at the time, we were taking in 55,000 animals and euthanizing 35,000 of them. Oh, my God. A
0: year. A year. A year. That many. A year. A year. I just got chills. It was awful. 55,000. Right. Wow, and euthanizing thirty-five of those. Right, that's that's over the top.
1: And so I had an amazing staff, and you know, over seventeen years, we worked. Um, we reduced that fifty-five thousand down to about eighteen thousand, and we reduced that euthanasia from thirty-five thousand down to about five hundred. Oh wow!
0: Yeah. So, when Guide Dogs to the Blind came along, or came, I don't know if they came to you or you went to them, but there wasn't a lot of question about whether you were qualified for the job <laughs> and whether you had the passion for the job.
1: Well, you know, I retired from the Humane Society. Oh. I wasn't planning on going back to work. Uh-huh. And after about two years, I really started missing being part of a team that was focused Uh-oh. on.
0: Thea's, Thea's getting restless. She is. She
1: is. I apologize for that. That's okay, Thea. She just wants some attention. She was trying to stand up. Yeah. um, Anyways, I really miss being part of a team focused on good. And I think the universe is a pretty amazing place because (sighs) I started thinking about that and then um, a mutual contact that... Somebody who was a business contact for Guide Dogs as well as the Humane Society Uh let me know that they were looking for a CEO. So I applied and...
0: And clearly it was meant to be.
1: I was honored to get the job.
0: But that was, I think, in your bio, did I say 14 years ago? That or. What did I say in your bio? That's been a five. while. It's five, five years. years. Five. <laughs> I've been there five oh, no, years. 17 years of the Humane Society. That's where right. I was getting the teen. Okay, right. so, so five at Guide Dogs right. for the Blind. Right, right. Okay. And
1: I started in uh, 2014. In 2014. There's the 14. Okay. All yeah. right.
0: There's the 14. I knew there was a 14 in there somewhere. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Guide Dogs for the Blind. Sure. Their history and mission. Um, sort of when, why, and by whom was was the organization started?
1: Yeah, This the organization was started in 1942. It was started by a group of people who had military roots, and it was started to serve those veterans who were blinded in World War II. Mm-hmm. So um, it originally started actually in Los Gatos, yeah. California, yeah. and uh, 1942 by 1948, they had acquired 13 acres in San Rafael, and that's where the first campus was built. Yep. And then in 1995 Guide Dogs expanded with a second campus which is right outside of Portland.
0: Yeah, I saw that and I was curious why why another campus so far away versus expanding here. I mean, I know obviously it's really expensive. Yeah. Was it just a financial thing or was there mm-hmm. more to doing it that far north?
1: You know um i wish i could say that there was a ton of thought and analysis in yeah, yeah. <laughs> making that decision uh-huh. uh guide dogs had, that was long
0: before you also. it was yeah. before me yeah
1: um but guide dogs had been uh given some property outside of portland uh okay and so that was the decision hey and yeah. um the the analysis was really based on need so we knew that there were more people out there who were looking for guide dogs, that we were pretty much tapped out on our current campus, and so mm-hmm. that was the reason for establishing a second uh, training campus.
0: Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. So I just wanted to t- I'd go on Wikipedia. I went on Wikipedia because I was curious just about the history of guide dogs. Yeah. And so I'm just going to read off a little bit here and you might already know all this. Maybe some of it will be new to you, but it was definitely new to me and I thought it was okay. interesting. And you did just mention part of this, which is that the guide dogs, um, we started using them in association with, with soldiers coming back from people who mm-hmm. had been at war mm-hmm. with that were visually impaired as a result of war. That's kind of when it started. Uh, so I just want to say here from Wikipedia. So. But way before that, even references to service animals date at least as far back as the mid 16th century, which in a sense isn't that surprising because humans have had you know close relationship with animals for a while. But I just thought it was interesting that that's the first time that we see that in recorded history. Uh, and then, quote, the first service animal training schools were established in Germany during World War One to enhance the mobility of returning veterans who were blinded in combat interest in service animals outside of Germany did not become widespread until Dorothy Harrison Eustace an American dog breeder living in Switzerland wrote a first-hand account about a service animal training school in Potsdam Germany that was published in the Saturday Evening Post in 1927 so that's a little about about a little bit about the history mm-hmm. prior to to when it started in the states which like I said you may or may not have known and then we talked about you guys got started in 42. And moved to San Rafael in 47 so it's, the organization has been around for 77 for quite a while. years 77 years yes which is impressive yes what, something else that is really, really impressive that also uh, blew my mind and I realize that's probably the third time I've said that today, but this really did blow my mind was um, all of your services are free of charge
1: All of our services are free of charge.
0: So what what does that include when we say all of your services? what are some of the high level things that that right. includes just to give people an idea?
1: right so our service model is unique um, on a worldwide basis so we offer much more than uh, any other guide school Mm -hmm. Um, but what that service model entails is obviously a guide dog it's bringing somebody to one of our campuses, either in Oregon or in California, for two weeks of training. Mm-hmm. What talk it about? includes uh, follow-up services on a yearly ba- basis to ensure that the teams are working um, together well and safely. And that includes actually physical visits out to see the ta- the teams working. Mm-hmm. We do have a support center on our campuses, on both of our campuses actually, where people can call in with uh, questions or concerns. And we also take care of the veterinary bills Tots. for our dogs. Um, That's amazing. Over their entire life it is you guys are
0: really impressive the more i was reading as i was preparing for today i thought it's all free on top of it that's amazing we're going to talk about how some of your finances and we're going to talk about a little more detail about some of the things you just mentioned but thank you for kind of summarizing at at that high level um so one of the things that most interests me about and i think probably a lot of people is is how a puppy becomes a guide dog Mm -hmm. and part of my interest in that stems from the fact that not all guide dogs make it You know, so it really is a sort of rigorous and you've got to, you know, they've got to make their marks. Your dog, Thea, underwent a career change as people, watchers and listeners have heard me say a million times. Thin, my uh, my canine nephew, Thin, underwent a career change, which is part of the reason I got, you know, uh, became familiar with your organization. So I'm curious about the process. But. I know that before we get to training, there are a few other steps. Of, quite a few. Right. Quite a few other steps. Right. And so the specific sort of high-level ones, I'm thinking of the breeding, socialization, and puppy raising before you get mm-hmm. the pups ready to, to go into the training. So let's talk about first, uh, where do you get the dogs?
1: So Guide Dogs for the Blind has its own breeding colony. We've got the largest breeding colony of labs and golden retrievers anywhere in North America. So we're a bit let's... unique. Yeah, I, that, that was another standpoint. thing
0: I didn't I didn't realize that you guys would actually be be breeding in your facilities in we your organization. We do, we yeah. do,
1: and and the reason for that is is that the traits that are needed in order to be a guide dog are unique and. One of the things that I like to tell people is that our golden retrievers and our Labrador retrievers are not just labs and goldens. Mm-hmm. They're guide dog labs and goldens, and that's different. And how is that different? That's different. So, what we're breeding for is we're breeding for confidence because it takes a very confident dog to be a guide dog, and we can talk about why that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but confidence, not dominance, mm-hmm. sociability and caring, as well as, you know, medical stability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So our dogs actually are longer lived than what you're going to find in the normal lab and golden really? retriever. Interesting. Right. They have fewer of the traditional issues. Labs traditionally have eye problems. Oh, believe really? Believe it or not. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Yeah. Golden retrievers with hip dysplasia. Mm-hmm. That I've so heard there's about, yeah. very little of that in our colony, again, because we're you know managing that out mm-hmm. um and what you're getting is this just amazing temperament mm-hmm. that is really unique to guide dogs yeah. and um anybody who's had one of our career change dogs will tell you that yeah yeah, yeah.
0: it really the temperament really really stands out and that's why I right. think people are just drawn to them like magnets right they I mean, when are. you see them uh, when you see them out um so so we're talking about labs, though. So certain, obviously, you've chosen a specific breed of dog. You, you recognize that the, those breeds exhibit those characteristics more than other right. breeds. It sounds right. like, and it seems to me whenever, because in addition to to the dog that I pet sit so often when I'm in San Rafael a lot, and I see you guys training mm-hmm. on the streets, mm-hmm. almost all the labs seem to be yellow labs. Is there, mm. is that just coincidence from what I've seen? Do you have a lot of black labs as well? We or do, it's Goldens? about 50-50. Oh, is it 50-50, okay. And,
1: and there's specific reasons for that. So 70% of our clients are visually impaired, mm-hmm. not completely blind. Right. And with a visual impairment, um, many people are able to see colors. So now, if you can see light colors, we're going to pair you with a yellow lab. If you can see dark colors, we're going to pair you with a black lab.
0: Ah, interesting. So
1: there's very specific reasons around uh-huh. all of that.
0: Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I uh, I also went to Wikipedia about labs, Ooh, so I'm just going right. to read quickly about labs <laughs> <Okay>. because <laughs> yeah. I don't know that much about dogs. I love dogs. Okay. I don't know a lot. So I was just curious. Where did the lab come from? Right. Uh huh. So again, I'll be curious what. Of this you already know versus what you don't, <laughs> don't No, um, but so from Wikipedia the infallible Wikipedia I'm told everything there is 100% accurate quote the modern Labradors ancestors originated on the island of Newfoundland now part of the province of Newfoundland and Labrador Canada the founding breed of the Labrador was the st. John's water dog A breed that emerged through ad hoc breedings by early settlers on the island in the 16th century so again we're going way back Mm -hmm. the forebears of the saint john's dog are not known but were likely a random bred mix of english irish and portuguese working breeds the newfoundland is likely a result of the saint john's dog breeding with mastiffs brought to the island by generations of portuguese fishermen who had been fishing offshore since the 16th century the smaller, short short-coated St. John's dog was used for retrieval and pulling in nets from the water. These smaller dogs were the forebears of the Labrador Retriever. The white chest, feet, chin, and muzzle, known as tuxedo markings, characteristic of the St. John's dog, often appear in modern lab mixes and will occasionally manifest in Labradors as a small white spot on the chest known as a medallion. The last thing I'll say here is that in 1822, explorer W.E. Cormac crossed the island of Newfoundland by foot. In his journal, he wrote, quote, the dogs are admirably trained as retrievers in fowling, birds, and are otherwise useful. The smooth or short-haired dog is preferred because in frosty weather, the long-skinned kind become encumbered with ice on coming out of the water. So it's, in sum, it sounds as if uh, our beloved Labradors have been hard-working, loyal pooches for a couple, a few centuries.
1: So I did not know any of that. Okay,
0: good. <laughs> good then i'm glad that was educational for you as well yes Yes. thank you i always like to just kind (laughs) of do a little poking around okay uh hello susan from scottsdale hello liz diane matthew aaron um i think that's everybody scrolling really quickly through the comments okay so we've got the dogs you have bred the puppies we've got the puppies but they don't just come out knowing how to interact. So there's some socialization that takes place. Can there you just is. talk really quickly what that is? Sure. And I think that's what my friend Liz does. Is that what you do, Liz? Are you a socializer? Is that is that what people do when they volunteer? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes, they do. So, um, one of the things I like to tell people is we actually start socialization training when the the puppies are three days old. Oh, wow. So this is very different, again, than, than a dog that you're going to get through any other kind of breeder. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really important that a guide dog is socialized with people, and we start that as early as possible. Yep. And that is increased over the next eight to ten weeks that these puppies are on our campus. After eight to ten weeks they actually go out to their puppy raisers and we have two thousand puppy raisers in the ten western states as far east as Texas.
0: Yeah, which was my next which is my next question, the actual raising. So yes. again I was surprised that uh, that you guys breed in house. We do. And then I was surprised that they're raised. Out-of-house or off-site. Yes. And not only in California and Oregon, but um, I had the list of countries, like you said, not countries, um, states. Oh, yeah. Arizona, California, Colorado, Idaho, Nevada, New Mexico, Oregon, Texas, Utah, and Washington. Yes. So they go far afield.
1: They go far afield. Yeah. Yeah. And why is
0: that? Just because you just need the number, if you've got 2,000 pooches, that you just need a lot of houses and a lot of homes, rather? Well, we're
1: breeding 850 to 900 puppies a year. Yeah. So that's a, a lot, lot of people. A lot of that's a lot of homes that are needed. And those pups were very grateful to our puppy raisers. Yeah. Um, those pups uh, stay with their puppy raisers for a minimum of a year. Our puppy raisers are organized into puppy clubs mm-hmm. where there are, you know, very strict protocols on how you raise a puppy. Yeah. And when you introduce a puppy to certain things. And um, all of those clubs are then overseen by staff mm-hmm. from guide dogs who um, are located out in the field.
0: And that, that staff then is presumably checking in, doing sort of home visits and things to make sure that the the razors are sticking to your, your uh, guidelines. So our,
1: Right. So our staff are actually working with the clubs mm-hmm. and they're checking in with the clubs on a periodic like basis to see the progress of the pups. Yeah. And um, we work um, our leader, club leaders also work very closely with our staff. If we've got somebody who's not thriving well, not, you know doing well with a particular razor, we'll actually change razors. Oh, yeah. um, you know, each each dog is an individual, just the way that people are, and sometimes somebody's a little more strong willed. You may need somebody who has a little more experience. Mm-hmm. in dealing with some issues
0: well and that's that's a theme that came up a lot when I was again preparing for today's show okay. which is the, the just this notion which again anyone who interacts with animals it doesn't come as a, as a surprise yeah. but it was interesting how much it came up in relative to what your organization does in so far mm-hmm. as the personality of the individual dog mm-hmm. whether it's training whether it's the the person that they're actually going to be uh, matched up with as right. as their service dog That there really is it really does have to be a match it's not just like okay you need a dog here's one we just trained next who needs a dog here's it really is it is a match yeah it is a match
1: and there is so much that goes into that match so we work very very closely with our clients and it usually starts a year before they come into class Mm -hmm. to understand what their specific needs are and wants.
0: Okay. So let's if we may, if we sure. can, can. I know that I started to lead us down that path, yeah. but I'm gonna ask you more about that. All so right. I wanna stick with the razors for a second. The Good. The, the pet okay. ra- the puppy razors, because I have a couple questions there. One actually the first thing is is just a comment. I, I I saw that primary razors can be as young as nine years old. Yes. So can you tell me about that? Is it just that a nine year old they're already they already know how to feed and love and that's that's sort of enough? I was surprised to see obviously that that young yeah, could be a I will razor. tell
1: you our, uh, nine, 10, 11, 12 year old razors are unbelievable. And part of the reason yeah they follow direction. Uh-huh. Guess what? Yeah. Us older people.
0: Uh-huh. We know.
1: Well, we know we cut corners. We say, ah, I'm not doing that. That's too much work. I'm going to do something else.
0: Right. Um, right.
1: our, our youth razors are unbelievable. Yeah. And actually oftentimes more successful than adult razors.
0: That's fascinating. Okay. And then my other question that I wanted to make sure we didn't skip over is, I'm sorry, if I raised a puppy for a year and it's still practically a baby after a year, right? I mean, it's still very, very much a puppy. Right. How do the razors, I mean, do you ever have issues where you've got to send in, you know, people to, to get the puppies because the razors have become so attached? I mean, or is, Does the razors, they're just doing so many that they kind of know not to get too attached? I mean, it just seems tricky. It's very tricky.
1: It's very tricky because it is extremely emotional. Yeah. Um, We work with people. So when you sign up to be a puppy raiser, we don't just hand you a puppy. You have to join one of our puppy clubs. You have to be involved with the club for at least six months. You have to learn our training methodologies. You have to start with doing some puppy sitting. Mm-hmm. So over a weekend um, before we hand you a puppy. And during that six-month period of time, we work very closely to help people really emotionally understand what this is going to take. Yeah, Some people just decide, you know something? I don't think I can do it because yeah. Yeah. I don't think I can give this puppy back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so people do recognize that. They do. I don't think, yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: I will also tell you that, I mean, it is really hard. And even for the most experienced racers, I start to cry at this stuff. That's all right. They're when, the, when their puppy comes back, they're crying. Yeah. They're crying. And yeah. you, you know, um, And even when their puppy goes as a guide and is paired with just an amazing, amazing individual, they still cry. Because there's that bond. There's that bond. But when you see what our dogs do and the difference that they make, that's what pulls you back right. for doing it again.
0: Right. This is part of a greater mission, a greater oh, good. It's not about my connection with the dog, even though right. that's legitimate, but right. it's about something bigger here that right. we're working towards. Right. Wow. I love it. Okay. Uh, we have Kleenex over there. Could you, could you <laughs> Seriously, Brad, there's some Kleenex, I think on the um, training. Uh, yes. So we've, we've raised the puppies. If you need one, there's, there's some Thank Kleenex. You. Um, Probably will. Can you push it a teeny bit out of camera though? That's the only thing I should, or either bring it closer or thank you, Brad. (laughs) Perfect. Okay. So we've raised our puppies. We have dealt with any emotional connection issues that we might have and we've recognized, okay, they're ready for training. Uh, at what point does that happen and then, um, what does that actually entail? What's the sort of high level training program then?
1: Right. So let me, let me start by talking about the individuals who actually do our dog training Mm -hmm. and our client training, because again, you don't walk onto our campus, no matter how much experience you've had with dogs and start training. Mm -hmm. It's a three year apprenticeship. Oh Wow. Yeah.
0: Okay, interesting.
1: So that three years is learning not only about dogs, um, our training methodology, but also learning about blindness, all the different types of blindness, adult learning, um, the different types of medical issues that oftentimes accompany blindness mm-hmm. and how that could impact someone's learning. hmm and it's about problem solving. Mm-hmm. So as you're training, um, every dog's an individual. Mm-hmm. There are going to be problems that come up. Yep. Every client is an individual. Mm-hmm. There are going to be issues that come up. And now you're taking two unique individuals, putting them together as a seamless team. That takes a minimum of three years to learn how to do. I bet. I bet. So our dogs come back at somewhere between 14 and 16 months of age, mm-hmm. and then they enter our training program, which is a 12-week program.
0: 12 weeks. Okay. 12 weeks. Which seems, given everything, so we just got talking about done talking about you right. know three years of training. So right. 12 weeks almost sounds, and they've been away for a year. So so much of this is big chunks of time. I was surprised that it's, quote, unquote, only 12 weeks. Is that just because, one, they're quick learners and because they only need to learn very specific stuff and they just pick it up? Or it just sounded like I was kind of surprised that there was that amount of time.
1: Right. So this is all a very well-oiled machine, right? sure it is, yeah. So we start training when the babies are three days old.
0: Uh, Oh, the training starts at that age. All that socialization. socialization. Right, right. So...
1: Part, part of training is feeling comfortable with the world, right? Mm-hmm. Because if I'm traumatized every time I walk out my door, I can't learn. Yep. So all that socialization on our campus. Um, our puppy raisers are really great about training our dogs with their house manners, walking on leash, mm-hmm. introducing them to everything in the world. Buses, planes, trains, malls restaurants, workspaces, crowds, um, yeah, so really they've,
0: they've been being trained almost from day three, it sounds like they have been right. So when we talk about the training phase, it's really about the working with the person
1: as a being the guide dog. Well, and it's learning their guide skills. Right. Right. So the thing about a guide dog or guide service is that it's the most complicated, uh, type of service work of any really of the services Mm -hmm. and the reason is is because a guide dog has to evaluate the command that they're given and determine whether it's safe to execute that command and if it's not safe they have to disobey the command
0: yeah i i loved that concept the um you have a term for that. Something disobedience. Intelligent, Intelligent disobedience. Intelligent disobedience. Yeah, right. the dog overriding the human right. command. Right. Yeah. Now,
1: all other service work is taking a command. Mm-hmm. And all other service work is, if you don't get it right the first time, oh, you got to check in the second chance. Yeah. Yeah. In guide work, you can't just walk somebody into traffic once. Yeah. You got to do everything correctly 100% <laughs> yeah. of the time. Right. I couldn't be a guide dog.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Me neither. (laughs) Me neither. I'm glad I'm writing and podcasting because I'm clearly not made out to be a guide dog.
1: Right. But all of that can be done in 12 weeks because of the methodology we were, we use, which is positive reinforcement.
0: And there was something about clicker training as well. Yes. So can you just give us a little insight into those?
1: Right. So maybe if I could just start with a little bit of background about service dog training. So traditional service dog training. So service dogs started in the military. Mm -hmm. um, And the first service dog trainers, and the first guide dog trainers were military dog trainers. And so the type of training that's used in the military is basically punishment based. Mm. So Guide Docs for the Blind was the first service organization on a worldwide basis to switch from punishment based training to positive reinforcement training. Hmm. Interesting. And that made a huge difference difference for our dogs and for our clients so punishment-based training is you set the dog up to fail and you punish them when they do right so that they're afraid to fail again right positive reinforcement training is you set the dog up to succeed and you reward them for succeeding Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. now both training methodologies you get a well-trained guide dog Mm -hmm. the difference is that with positive reinforcement training they learn faster and they love to work Mm. because I'm rewarded all the time for doing my job.
0: That's why Finn needs so many treats. That's why he constantly needs treats because he wants (laughs) to be rewarded. Okay. This is making more sense now. No, but yeah, I love that. I love that concept and the difference that you're saying. Right. And
1: and think about it from our client's perspective. You know, their guide dog is somebody who's with them 24 seven gives them confidence as their soulmate helps them to safely get from point a to point B. Do you want to be punishing? Right? No, you right. don't, right. you don't, you want to be, you know, loving and rewarding and, and you also want a dog that's excited when they see the harness and go and ready to work. Right. Right. Definitely. So that, that type of training methodology, um, allows us to train in 12 weeks what clicker training does is it marks the behavior that we want. So, because it's faster to click than it than it is to get the reward out of your pouch. Mm-hmm. So, we mark it with a clicker mm-hmm. and then reward. Mm-hmm. So, the dog knows exactly what they did.
0: Ah.
1: And so, it's very precise. Yeah. Clicker training is very precise. And then we can take that extra one or two seconds to get the treat out and reward. But them. the message has already been sent, but the message has been sent. It's kind of like Pavlov's dog, yeah. right? You yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm going to have to start clicking with Finn. Interesting. I love that. Yes. Okay. The one other thing I wanted to ask about the how, yes. And then I want to just give some examples of some of the specifics of what they're trained. Cause okay. there are some very specific things. Yes. And we probably already touched on some of that, but you know, you just, you just use the example of, uh, they can't make a mistake, you know, more than once, you don't lead someone out into oncoming traffic. right? And yet part of the training, it says, quote, uh, this is from your website, as the training advances, dogs are given the freedom to make errors. Mm-hmm. So at some point, and this I think goes along with the lines of what you were talking about, positive reason, reinforcement and, a, and sort of a loving, supportive right. training right. versus, you know, punishing them for making that error. Right. You do allow some errors during the training. Can you just speak to that a teeny bit? Uh, I'm just curious. Absolutely. So,
1: that's the concept of positive reinforcement training. You ignore the behavior you don't want. Uh Okay. So, So someone makes a mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to ignore that. Yeah. We're going to ignore that. Uh We're going to go. So, you Uh make a mistake. Let's go back and let's do it again. Uh Ah, you got it this time. You're going to be rewarded. So, that's built
0: in essentially. Right. As uh
1: opposed to punishing you. You made a mistake. We're not punishing. We're not doing any of that. Yeah. Okay.
0: I love that. All right. So can you give us just a few examples of some of the specifics that, that, that they're taught during this 12-week um, guiding learning period?
1: Right, right. So one of the things that people have a tendency to think is that the guide dog has to make decisions around things like crossing streets or making a right, right. or making a left. That's not true. The, um, that's why they're called a team. Um, Our client or the handler is making the decisions about whether to go forward, to go left, right, or to cross the street. The guide dog is going to evaluate whether that decision is safe to Mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. And so part of that is how do you train a dog to disobey a command? Right. 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 The
0: intelligent disobedience. Right.
1: Right. And that's, that's where the subtlety in some of the training actually comes. So for things like traffic training, right? How do you train a dog that, um, you don't walk out into traffic or how do you train a dog around, you know, a car can hurt you. You do not want to get in front of a car. Um, we actually do traffic training. We get really close Mm -hmm. we don't nobody gets hit really but we're we're training that dog so there's there's a natural inclination when something is coming at you and it looks like it's going to hit you that you want to back up right Mm -hmm. you want to get out of the way yeah so we take advantage of that we don't hit our dogs. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do that. Hardly ever. Right. I hardly ever get no, hit during this training. No, no, no. Never yeah. do that. Uh-huh. But we, we get close enough where the dog naturally is going to pull back. Now we click and reward. Mm-hmm. You did the right thing. For the thing. pulling back. You saw that car. You pulled back. And that's exactly what we want. Mm-hmm. And we keep reinforcing that. Yep. Reinforcing that. And then we keep pulling the, you know, getting the dog to make that decision when the car's farther away and farther Mm -hmm. away and farther away. Mm -hmm.
0: So interesting. What are the dogs? I guess you already touched on this. I was going to, I was going to ask you, what are the dogs not trained? Um, but I guess, no, you did. You just talked about that. And basically it's, it's, it's that some of the things we might assume watching them that we think they're deciding really are coming from. The, the,
1: right. So yeah. one of the misconceptions is that guide dogs can read traffic lights.
0: Right. That was the one The one that I was yes. thinking of, actually. And yeah. No, they can't. Yeah.
1: They can't. Yeah. Um, they're actually colorblind yeah. as well. Which I was surprised so, to see. Yeah. yeah. So it's really... Uh, it's the handler who gives the command to go forward. Yep. But the guide dog, if a car... The typical situation is it's Prius. It's an electric car. You can't hear it. (laughs) Oh, oh yeah. You can't hear it. Oh, tricky. Yeah. Right. Uh Uh-huh. So, you know, it's the dog who then pulls back, pulls you away from the street rather than walks you into the street.
0: Yep. Yep. Okay. So the last, uh, question, the last sort of section of the training is the pairing with the client. Mm -hmm. So they've gone through their 12 weeks, right? And then, um, there's the, there's a class training when a fully trained dog is matched with a student, right? So can you tell us just a little bit about that? And then we're going to talk about the other side of the coin, which is the people who are coming to, to be right. matched up with, right. um, with the guide dog.
1: So, um, we actually, as I said, really start the pairing process probably a good year in advance. Mm-hmm. So when you apply to guide dogs for the blind, we come out, we visit you. We want a good understanding of what's the environment in in which you live, what's your daily routine like, um, what are you like? Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason I say that is you're really an outgoing person. And you love talking with people. We're going to pair you with an outgoing dog. Right. That's going to make eye contact, cross the room, Mm -hmm. and start to elicit, Uh you know, (laughs) some interaction there for you.
0: So it's taking this whole notion of how dogs and owners look like one another or act like one another to the next level. Yes. You're doing it very deliberately. Yes. Yes. We are. Uh But
1: if you're somebody who uh, does a lot of travel, we had a board member um, who has since retired from our board. But he basically, over a six-year period of time, travels about a million miles, airplane miles. Wow. So that is a very unique dog that can travel all over the world.
0: (laughs) I'm jealous of that dog. Yeah. And all
1: kinds of airports, all kinds of cities. Speaks a lot of languages. Speaks a lot of languages Uh versus someone who uh, lives in the suburbs of uh, San Rafael. Mm -hmm. Right. And basically somebody who's going to a volunteer opportunity on a daily basis. Right. That's a, you know, it's, it's just a very different environment that, um, one has to be paired with. Right.
0: And again, we come back to the personalities and... Right. right.
1: The the other thing is that all of our clients are unique individuals. They have likes and dislikes. We talked a little bit about, you know, whether you can see color and we're going to pair you with a color you can see. But, you know, some people really like goldens. Some people really like males. Some people really like females. Some people like yellow laps. So... On top of all of the, the requirements that you're going to need as just part of your life, then we also want to match you with exactly what you want right. in a dog. Right, Yeah.
0: Right. Okay, so let's, let's shift more to the, the person side of the equation. Sure. Uh, the handler side of the equation is that well no is a handler what what what's the sort of official what's the right term for the the person who you has the guide dog, yeah we call handler. them the handler okay. right uh, so what are the there's there's sort of I think three sort of minimum criteria that someone has to meet uh, to qualify as a candidate for the to to have a guide dog do you know what those are Am I putting you on the spot because I have them here?
1: <laughs> well, let's see if yours okay. yours match mine. So. Um, first and foremost, you have to be legally blind. That's what I'm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which means you don't have to be completely blind. Right, just legally blind. Legally blind. Right. Secondly, you have to um, have a basic level of orientation mobility skills, yep. and what that means is you have to know how to orient yourself as a blind person mm-hmm. within your environment. Yep. You thirdly have to have um, a need for a guide dog. You have to have a need to go somewhere every single day. Mm. It doesn't mean that you need to have a job. Mm -hmm. Um, But even if you are just going out and you like to walk in your neighborhood, a guide dog is going to lose its guide skills Mm. if it's not worked every day. And you're going to lose your skills as well. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be out working your dog every single day.
0: Well, then I would guess too, you don't want to pair up a guide dog with someone who doesn't really need it in the sense if they're not that active, if they're not out in the world, right. you want to make sure that dog is placed with someone right. where he's, he or she is getting best. Right. Interesting. Right. Okay.
1: There's a fourth criteria. Oh, there's a fourth. Uh, yeah. This one I didn't... Because
0: you, you just scored 100%. Did I? You oh, did. good. Oh, gosh. So now I, I... get to keep my job. Now I'm just going to get a B or a C though because there's a fourth <laughs> one here that I don't have. Thea, can you help us here?
1: So, um... I apologize. I dropped her leash. That's okay. Um, So the fourth criteria actually... Oh, we can see Thea. Can you?
0: see see Thea, say hi. hi? Yeah. Say hi, sweetie. There we go. She's pretty. Okay. She's gorgeous. (laughs) She's absolutely gorgeous. Yes.
1: So um, the fourth criteria is that you live in an environment that is conducive for a guide dog. So -hmm. what does that mean? Yeah. We've unfortunately had to decline individuals who are living in, usually it's more rural environments where there are a lot of off-leash aggressive dogs. Uh So if a guide feels it's going to be attacked every time it walks out Mm -hmm. its front door, it's going to stop guiding.
0: I wouldn't. Yeah. I'd stop. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So there are some circumstances like that. Right. Okay, so another thing that I I I thought was interesting and helpful is you have a self-screening process. Mm -hmm. So I'm someone who thinks I might want a guide dog but again, it's not for everyone, Right. what are some things on that in that self-screening process that help people get a sense for whether a guide dog is that sort of lifestyle really is suited to it, besides the sort of environmental stuff we were just talking about and the, right. the, the legally blind stuff, right. but um, the self-screening, what are some of the things that come up so with that? So
1: one of the things that we do is we have guide dog lifestyle workshops,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we do these all over the country. So it's an all-day um, seminar. We actually bring guide dogs in. We give people an opportunity to actually work with a guide dog. But there is a lifestyle that one has to have because, you know, a guide dog is another living being that you have to care for. Right. And the, and I shouldn't say the secret, but the the key to utilizing a guide dog as well is routine. Mm. So guide dogs are trained not to relieve in harness. Mm. But what that means from your standpoint is you have to um, have a very specific time when you feed your dog every day, um, which means that there's a very specific time when your dog will be ready to relieve. Mm -hmm. So we can't ask more of our dogs than... Is appropriate. Sure. Right. So it's getting yourself on a routine as well. Um, and usually that's six AM breakfast.
0: Yeah. Um Oh, that's really early. I know. Can I we know. can we move that to a little later? <laughs> I'm really not sure the guide dog lifestyle's for me. Six AM breakfast. That, yeah, that's not gonna work for me. Yeah. Okay. Take me off the list. All right. All okay. Right. But I have a couple, uh, there were a couple interesting uh-huh. specific things that I saw in your self-screening uh, questionnaire. So one of the things was, quote, are you willing to travel with less tactile awareness of your environment? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Consider that guide dogs are trained to avoid obstacles rather than locate them as a long cane does. Yes. So that was a consideration I obviously never, never would have thought right. of. that. You're going to have to kind of give up. Right Some of the sense of control that you have using your cane if you switch to a guide dog, so and that's you have to give shift. out
1: a hundred percent of the control a hundred percent tricky because if you start thinking that you know more than your guide dog about getting you from point A to point B, pretty soon your guide dog's going to say, "Fine, you take over
0: right, you're the boss, yeah, yeah, that's there you go,
1: yeah, uh some people can't make that transition, some people um really feel that they want that tactile Mm -hmm. um, feel sense of yeah. yeah
0: particularly it sounded as if people who still have some vision because they might think that they can see even if it's blurry even if it's not clear they might have a sense that they think they know the right way and the dog is saying well actually that's not best and so they're getting that input and so there's a conflict and that's That could be tricky, I would think, It it can be
1: tricky, but that also can occur with people who have absolutely no sight at all. If they're used to using a cane, if they're used to, again, knowing exactly what is in your environment. Because when you use a guide dog, you don't know what's in your environment. Because your guide dog is going to take you around all the obstacles. Now, you're going to walk at the speed of uh, someone, you know, who is sighted, mm-hmm. you'll be walking a lot faster mm-hmm. than yeah. you do with your cane. Yeah. Um, and we really believe too, that you are also safer with a guide dog, but mm-hmm. it, it's not for everybody. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I think I might, I think it might be for me. I mean, we've just established it's not, cause I'm not getting up at six to have <laughs> breakfast. I know a <laughs> lot of, I mean, you know, I, I did before I was a writer and I had to go, you know, be there at, you know, be to work at eight or whatever, but not now I've only gone to bed at like three, two or 3 a.m. So oh. you can understand a 6 a.m. <laughs> breakfast is not going to work for me, but let's pretend that it does. Okay. And then I want to I want to contact you and apply for a guide dog. Right. So I contact you. I do the self assessment. I send in my form. And like you said, it starts a year before I might or might not end up with one. What percentage of people who apply for one actually do end up with one? Do you have a, a yeah. even just a rough sense? So sentence?
1: that, that is significantly increasing. So, uh, five years ago, 60% of the people who applied for a guide dog were denied. 60% were denied. And
0: Interesting. the
1: primary reason was that they did not have sufficient orientation and mobility skills. Mm-hmm. And that is occurring. Th- this is a crisis that is occurring within our country right now. Mm-hmm. Um, back in 2008, when you know we had the Great, Great Recession. Yeah. A lot of those services that are taught and paid for either by the state or counties were discontinued, uh-huh. or focused on individuals who are considered to be the most employable, which are um, people you know in their teens, twenties, maybe into their thirties. Mm-hmm. Most. Visual impairments now strike people in their 40s, 50s, 60s. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to get those skills. So we've actually, uh, three years ago, started a pre guide dogs course where, also free, we have partnered with three other blindness agencies in the state of California and work with them to bring our clients. Um, into their programs for a week of, uh, intensive orientation, mobility training. Right. right. And then, uh, our clients then go back home. They practice. We come out and visit them again. And within six to 12 months, they'll come back for a guide dog. Oh, great. So yeah. that's,
0: that's getting the the statistics up. It is. Yeah. It Interesting. is. Um, what, is there a wait list?
1: There is a wait list. Yeah. The wait list is, um, and just, really depends on the time of year sure. right now. Our wait list is between six and eight months.
0: Okay. Yep. So that That's after seems acceptance. reasonable to me. Yeah. Not that I would be a good judge of that, but yeah, after acceptance. Okay. Right. Okay. So I get accepted and things are moving along and you bring me out to San Rafael or Oregon for two weeks. We do. Which again, this is another part that to me just seems amazing. So what am I going to do in those two weeks in San Rafael? Where am I going to stay? And what's, how does, how does all that work?
1: Right. So we have hotels on each of our campuses. So
0: crazy. Yeah. It's it's so great. It's so great that you guys, you even put up the people that that come out. We do. We
1: do, you know, because this is all about, you know, ensuring that there's a comfortable environment in which you can learn. Mm -hmm. So if you're having to, you know, stay somewhere where the food's not very good or it's, you know, hard to sort of figure out where you are, you know, within right. the building. Right.
0: you uh, almost need to be on, right on site. You, you yeah. do, you do. That's the whole point of getting the guide dog is to increase mm-hmm. your mobility and your independence, which you don't necessarily have yet. So exactly, so, yeah.
1: exactly. So, um, our classes start on Sunday. People fly in from all over North America, including mm-hmm. Canada. Yep um we start with an orientation on sunday
0: and i'm sorry before i forget you have a sister partner organization in canada i think it seems like we have, a fundraising, in, fundraising we have in a fundraising canada. arm fundraising we have a fundraising arm in canada yeah.
1: we um do all of our training in either oregon or california okay, okay. yeah
0: i knew i saw something about canada right on the site. Okay. right so um, you were saying i'm sorry they fly in on sunday Fly From North America, America they start, all over North America,
1: they start with their orientation, and basically that orientation just talks about what we're going to be doing over the next two weeks. We orient people on uh, to their room, to the building, uh, to the dining room, so people know how to get around. Um, and then Monday morning it starts, and mm-hmm. the first thing that we do on Monday morning is we do what's called Juno training. Mm-hmm. So that is orienting people to the harness, but the harness is actually attached to a person. Uh huh. And so <laughs> um, we start with just getting people to get the feel of what it's like to actually work with a guide dog. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And then that afternoon is a pretty special day. Um, and I cry at this, um, Oh my God, she's going to cry again. Yeah. Sorry about that. Again, Um, It's
0: beautiful. And I mean, again, it just shows your heart's in it. So uh, there's a lot of heart in this, in this mission. That's for
1: certain. And that's when our clients get their dogs. Uh huh. The first day, the first day. So it's, um, Monday afternoon. Um, they do not know uh, the name of their dog. They uh-huh. do not know, although they've put in their, you know, sort of their criteria of what they want, right, right. Um, they're still nece- not necessarily a guarantee. So um, it's a pretty special meeting. So they're yeah. in their rooms and um, the, the dog is brought to them.
0: so it's a one-on-one it's a one-on-one meeting
1: and they have the opportunity that afternoon to spend the afternoon with their dog they can do whatever they want Mm -hmm. um, but it's really getting to know their guide dog and then on Tuesday morning then we start with guide dog training and half of our you know our classes half of our classes are filled with individuals who are coming back we call them retrains Mm -hmm. for another dog and half with people who are getting a guide dog for the first time. Mm-hmm. And what we try and do, um, so our classes are taught two on one, so two clients to one instructor. Yep. And what we try and do is pair somebody who is, you know, a retrain with somebody who's getting a guide dog for the first time because there's a lot of moral support. It's, right, lo- it's a right. hard two weeks. It's a hard two weeks. And there's always a slump halfway through, and everyone, Always feels, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to make it. Yeah. And it's really great to have somebody who's kind of your partner in this who can say, you know something, that's exactly how I felt. You'll do it. Trust me, you'll and do what, it. And what
0: are the, some of the issues that are coming up making me think, I don't know that I can do this as I'm going through this training? What, what are some of those issues that are arising?
1: Sure. You know, it's just, it's a lot to learn. So you're learning a whole new language. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, you are a team, so the two of you are l- literally linked, yeah, you yeah. know right at the hip yeah. at the hip right, and y- you have to be comfortable with you know giving all control to your dog
0: mm-hmm. comes back to that again all yeah. control
1: yeah. um. Your dog has to start understanding your own idiosyncrasies.
0: <laughs> I don't have any. I no. am <laughs> yeah, <That's, me> either. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. So we would be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Thea, yeah. yeah. See, Thea's is right. really well adjusted. You don't, you clearly have no idiosyncrasies either, right. but some people do. Right. For those people who do, I understand. Right. 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 Okay. Um,
1: and it's also helping people make that transition from the cane to a guide. And what I mean by that is going from the tactile to using your ears because that's how yeah. you're making decisions. Now Ooh. it's not on. So we're ready to cross the street. You have to be able to hear what the flow of traffic that's is. That's a big change. It's a yeah. big change. Yeah. It's a it's leap a of faith. Cha- it's it a leap is. of faith to the pooch. Yes, it is. Right. It is. Right. But you know, it's learning. And a lot of people, again, when they're there, they've been using the cane, haven't necessarily learned all the skills of le- using their ears right for understanding and orienting themselves where they are Mm -hmm. you know doorways when you pass a doorway the sound is different than when you're going along a wall right right Um, you know you have to listen for the flow of traffic is it going you know parallel or perpendicular to you right Um, when is it you know time to cross the street a lot
0: of stuff you don't think about otherwise you don't because you haven't needed to necessarily exactly but now you do yeah right yeah big changes okay um, so are there some people who probably just say this isn't ultimately for me but probably the vast majority make it through yeah. I'm guessing
1: so our graduation rate is 95% okay. so we have yeah. about a 5% rate of yeah. folks who either um, it's clear they're not going to be making the transition or they decide you know I, I this just isn't for me right right and good good but, for them to realize that oh absolutely and it's absolutely. best for, for both sides yeah
0: and then you have graduation
1: we do, we do, and we highly recommend that people come to graduation. Mm-hmm. That's when the whole mission comes together. Yeah, It's every other Saturday um, on one of our campuses, and it starts at 1.30. You're usually done no later than 3 o'clock. You yeah. don't need to make a reservation. Mm-hmm. And that's where you, um, both our puppy raisers and our clients are there, Um Essentially celebrating.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like there's a lot to celebrate.
1: There is a lot to celebrate.
0: (sighs) Okay. So let's fast forward a little bit in the interest of time. Um, So I've graduated. My dog and I were out and about or or let's actually let's change perspective. I'm at the donut store, which is how it happens with in my case. I'm at the donut shop Uh in San Rafael fins outside and we see the guide dogs coming. And of course my inclination is to run out and wrap my arms around the cute guide
1: dogs,
0: (laughs) but that's not necessarily the best etiquette. So what do people need to know insofar as how to relate to guide dogs when they see a guide dog who's out and about and you want, they just look adorable and they have this beautiful temperament. Right. But what, what do people need to know?
1: Right. So, um, if a guide dog is working, if a guide and how do you know a guide dog's working? It's in harness. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, that dog needs to focus and so that's why we ask that people not you know not try and pet a guide dog if the team is stopped um we do ask ask the handler can i pet your guide dog yep. some people will say yes some people will say no but if a guide is you know traveling it's it's the same as if you're driving a car and all of a sudden somebody jumps on your windscreen, Mm, you know, your windshield Metaphor, right? Yeah. You can't see, you don't, Oh my God, you don't know what's, what's, what's going on. Mm -hmm. So if somebody distracts the guide dog, the guide dog can make a mistake. Yeah. So they need to
0: focus. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, again, sort of fast forwarding. uh, a guide dog doesn't work for 40 years or 50 years or whatever. So how long does a guide dog work for, for how long does a guide dog work? And then what, what does retirement look like for sure. a guide dog?
1: Yeah. So our, our guides work eight to nine years mm-hmm. and our guides work longer uh, on average than from other schools. And, and the reason for that is, is because of all of our follow on services, mm-hmm. we make certain that the guide dog has, um, timely veterinary, veterinary care and whatever it needs to essentially to stay healthy and working. Yep. So all of that makes a huge difference, All that's up. um, as well as getting out and seeing the teams and working with our client to make certain that they're, you know, they haven't gotten into a bad habit that, you know, could, um, hurt the safety of the team. Mm-hmm. But our dogs work eight to nine years. Mm-hmm. Um, we start preparing our client probably a year in advance of when we think that the dog is going to be retired. That's a huge issue.
0: Mm -hmm. Huge Mm -hmm. issue. Right. Again, the emotional Um, side of things, right?
1: Incredibly emotional. Yeah. And so we start working with our client, um, a year in advance. It's always the client's decision Mm -hmm. to retire the dog. It's Mm -hmm. not guide dogs stepping in, Yeah. but sometimes it, like any emotional decision, you need some coaching and some help right. with doing reality that. Reality check. Maybe. Right, Brent. right. About half of our clients choose to keep their guide dogs and the reason they do is because they have a family structure around them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, when you get your, you, you know, if you come back from, for another guide dog.
0: Because I still need a guide dog. They b- still per, need presumably. a guide dog. Right.
1: The, the challenge is, is that the relationship you have to have is with your new guide dog. 100% mm, of right. your effort Oof. has to be with your new guide. Yeah. You have, because otherwise the team is not going to bond and work you know, it's seamlessly. the other dogs right
0: there that you had this 10-year relationship right. with. Ugh. Right, right. Oh, so God. that's
1: why there's a family. If you have a family structure, it's really important Then then the family the guide dog becomes the family dog. Yeah. Um, For those individuals that don't have that family structure, oftentimes they will have family in the area or they'll have a good friend so that they can continue to see their guide. Um, And then there's a few individuals that none of that is in place and um the guide dogs will come back to to our facility and then we will find a wonderful forever forever home yep. for the guide Yep. and it does take a special home for a guide dog because yep. they're not backyard dogs yeah they're not dogs that you go to work and you put the dog in the backyard for
0: 10 hours right yeah right so. okay so we're going to talk a little bit about adoption and uh before i forget because i already did forget uh Chris has generously agreed to take questions. And I know I already have one question here that we're going to ask. All right. Uh, but if anyone else watching right now has questions, now would be the time to jot them down, formulate them. And, uh, shortly we will be getting, we'll be drawing things to a close and we'll take a couple, uh, or Chris will take a couple of questions. So I forgot to mention at the beginning, wanted to mention that now. Um, And so then I just wanted to say on this subject of retirement and getting a new dog that the average client will have four guide dogs in the course of their lifetime. It says on your website.
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Yeah. That's, um, so you really are building very long-term relationships with with your clients. We are. 40 year relationships. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Okay. Career change dogs. We've talked about them a little bit already. Thea's a career change dog. Finn's a career change dog. Um, not all dogs make it for reasons we've already talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, actually... I don't know. Did we talk about the reasons they don't make it? I think we did at the very beginning. Um, but let's just touch on that because let's just touch on that uh, if we didn't or if we did again, because there are a couple of interesting things I know we didn't say. So what are some what are some reasons dogs might not make it?
1: So the change. two the two key reasons that a dog doesn't make it um, is they don't have the confidence
0: mm-hmm.
1: to make those independent decisions
0: yeah,
1: or they're too distractible. Uh-huh. So those are the two issues. Okay.
0: And then I also saw on the website that um, 40% uh, are because of medical reasons that it said, quote, anything from allergies to cataracts to varying severities of dysplasia, which you did mention at the beginning, can Mm -hmm. also come into play. Okay. Uh, You mentioned also at the beginning. Let's just touch on this again so we've talked about adoption and we're going to talk more about the actual process whereby the 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 uh, dogs can get adopted both retirees and um and career change dogs but you mentioned the canine buddy program i think in the beginning yes and um and there's some other things that career change dogs can go on to do yes can you touch on those yes briefly so
1: we have been expanding our service offerings and so we have what's called a canine buddy dog which is a dog that is a companion um, dog that helps to build confidence with children who are blind or visually impaired, but are too young for a guide dog. Mm-hmm. And buddy dogs are pretty amazing. Yeah, and it's amazing to hear um, the difference that a buddy dog can make in a child's life. I bet. And. You know the confidence that they start to build in just being able to do things independently.
0: And why why are the guide dogs just primarily focused on adults? Is it just a certain level of I guess it's maybe independence. Kids don't need to be. Kids are presumably well, still. Well, no.
1: It's it's more on average we're looking at being at least sixteen years of age. We've actually placed dogs with kids as young as fourteen. Okay. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're, what we're looking for is a level of maturity mm-hmm. to be able to fully care for your guide dog. Yeah. So if mom and dad are relieving your dog or feeding your dog, you're not going to be, that team is not going to bond 100%.
0: It's got to be all you. It's got to be all you. Yeah. Yeah. So there,
1: okay. there's, there's a level of maturity that needs to take sense. place. Yeah. Makes sense.
0: Uh, search and rescue, medical alert work, pet therapy. So those are some other examples of the plethora of career changes that the, the can, uh, um, Can undergo. All right. I was walking Finn the other day in Petaluma Mm -hmm. last weekend, a weekend, the weekend before. And a fellow came up to me and he asked if, if Finn was a career change dog. And I said, yes. And he said that he was on the adoption wait list. Yes. And so unlike other, unlike animal shelters, it sounds, which are trying to get, you know, working so hard and, and, don't have enough people coming to them right. for the animals. Right. You guys have the opposite opportunity, I right. guess, in this case. We do. Which is so many people want the dogs. And we talked about largely because of the temperament. Um but I suppose it's also largely because they've been so well trained and just sort of all of the above. But what is what's the process? You and you you said you waited three years for Thea. I did. So tell us a little bit about I want a guide dog, I want a Finn, I want a Thea what's that process looks like look like
1: so uh, just to set expectations we have about a hundred dogs that go for adoption a year and about two thousand applications for those dogs wow um the vast majority now of the dogs that are placed for adoption typically have a medical condition that precludes them from other types of service Mm -hmm. so thea has dysplasia in her left hip so she could not be a guide dog and she could not go into other forms of service um so we are for those hundred dogs in general. We're looking for very special homes. Yeah, yeah. For those dogs. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: And how old are the dogs who qualify for adoption?
1: So we have two types of dogs that come up. Um, the vast majority of the dogs that are coming up for adoption are usually between sixteen and eighteen months. Um, but we do have um, a few retired guides. Mm-hmm that usually are 10, 11, okay. 12 yeah. the older ones, yeah. yeah they okay. go out for adoption.
0: And then let's say my 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 ship comes in, my dog comes in and you say, "Hey, you know what? We've got a we've got a dog for you." Then what happens? Cuz it's kind of interesting what happens.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, actually we do an extensive interview. We yeah. actually have you come to campus. We want to make certain that There's a right match there.
0: But I I loved in addition to, I have to go to campus, but if I have a dog, I've got to bring the dog. And if I have kids, I need to bring the kids. So again, there really is sort of a, this all has to work with all the different parties. You got to make sure that this pooch is going to get along with the new pooch and they've got to come out. And again, you can only this, uh, you can only allow the dogs to be adopted in those states that we referenced before. Yes. It sounds like that's correct. Okay. Okay. So as we wind down here and get to questions uh we've got to talk about how people can help because yes. you are a not-for-profit we are and uh, the easiest thing is i can go on your website and i can contribute please do and i can contribute one time i can contribute ongoing And the contribute button is on the website, which I'll say it's guidedogs.com. Yes, it is. I think it's that easy, right? Yes. I have that in my notes to say at the end. Guidedogs.com. Go on. Contribute now while you're thinking about it. Yes. Uh, But there are some other ways that people can help. Right. So can you share some of those ways?
1: Sure. So I'll just put a little bit more of a plug in for donating. Please do. (laughs) Because we receive no government funding and all of our all of our services are free. It's amazing. And we're completely reliant upon donation to to do what we do. Yep. So please do donate. Yep. Um in addition to that though, this is a huge community effort. So um we have 300 staff that work at guide dogs. We have over 4,000 volunteers. that contribute to the process and every single person is important so whether that's being a puppy raiser whether that's a campus volunteer who helps with socialization and walking dogs whether that's foster volunteers we have dogs that just don't do well in the kennels but are in our training program so we're looking for people who will you know, house the dogs during uh, the night and bring them back for training during the day. Right. Um, whether you're a breeder custodian, because all of our breeding stock live with volunteers, there are many, many, many ways to support the work that we do, and it really does take an entire city that to do like to do what we do.
0: It sounds like it. Uh, there's also one specific. You have a puppy center campaign. We do There's one specific thing you've been working on. So can you touch on that while we're yeah. thinking about, uh, so we help.
1: are building a brand new puppy center and what will happen in that puppy center is where all of our puppies are born and raised for the first eight to 10 weeks of life. Yep. And that center is, you know, as I said, we have the largest breeding colony of labs and golden retrievers in North America. So this is a unique center. There's yeah. not a lot of places who do what we do, yep. and um, we that that campaign is a twenty million dollar campaign, and we have not closed out the campaign yet. And there are still many opportunities. For uh, supporting the building of that campaign, and there are many naming opportunities if people many are interested. Naming opportunities, uh-huh. right? But In you naming. have
0: already—you are—the construction is already underway. The construction yeah. is underway. Okay. Yes, it is. But we've got to uh, finish the funding to lay the last brick and hammer we, the last nail, or whatever whatever the we metaphor do. might be. Okay, let's talk. Uh, Take—I uh, have a couple questions here. Great. So let's take a couple I'm questions. Thrilled. So the first question is from Liz. When a pup is career changed, and I don't know, I haven't read the questions yet, so we might have already answered them because a couple of them came in earlier. So let's see. When a pup is career changed, what other organizations do you work with Send Pups to? So what are some of the other organizations?
1: Sure. So we work right now with about 15 different agencies. Mm -hmm. um, Pretty much in the Western states, actually, is where we... um, In the 10 Western states. But our dogs go on to be... PTSD dogs, autism support, wheelchair support, diabetic alert, seizure alert, court support, um, search and rescue. I'm trying to think of all the different careers. So there's a whole host of careers. Hearing, hearing dogs. Sounds Um, like we
0: could all benefit from the training and have lots of (laughs) career options afterwards. It sounds like they're qualified to do quite a lot, or at least well-positioned. to be well, trained to do a lot of different the, things afterwards. The, re- the
1: reason is, if you think about it, is that um, guide dogs, doing guide work is, as I said earlier, the most complicated form of service work. Right. So just because a dog is career changed from guide work, most all of our dogs are will make terrific service dogs for other types of agencies. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. Okay, the last couple things I wanted to mention here. Thank you again, Liz, for that question. Uh, and the second question we answered, you said, she asked, uh, how many volunteers do you have across the two campuses? And I think you said 4,000. 4,000. Which is just incredible. Yeah. Uh, okay, you do campus tours. Just want to we throw do. that out for people who are local to the we Oregon do. campus or the San Rafael campus. We do. And then, of course, there are special events that people can check out on the website. Is there anything, though, uh, you've got tours, you've got the training, you've got... Um, what was the other thing that, oh, the graduations that people can go to. Is there anything imminent that we want to shout out about or we is it just all that do, ongoing stuff? We
1: do. So we have our big gala. Uh-huh. Oh, I which, didn't see this. Yes. Okay. I'm glad I asked. Um, which is September 20th Okay. in San Francisco at the Ritz Hotel. huh. You can go online and order tickets. Okay. Um, that will be a, it's a big fundraiser for us. So it's a great way that you can come and support guide dogs. You will have a great time. Uh, You will learn a lot about guide dogs, see quite a few dogs and be able to interact Mm -hmm. and um, support guide dogs at the same time.
0: Okay. And that's again, September, September 20th, September 20th. Right. Okay. Another quick question that just came in. Uh Oh, how does a person qualify to be a puppy raiser?
1: Because we talked
0: about what they do. I don't know if we talked about how you vet them. Right. Yeah.
1: So if you go online, you can actually fill out an application to be a puppy raiser. And then based on your location, we will assign you to a puppy club.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And then what we do is that we ask that you attend puppy club meetings, which meet once a week for about six months to learn about our puppy puppy raising protocols or training, um, you'll, within that six month period of time, you'll start actually doing some puppy sitting, um, go on some of the outings. And then after about six months, um, if all goes well, we will hand you a puppy.
0: Okay. There you go. All right. Thanks again for that question. Okay. Guide dogs.com is the website. And then, uh, the site that I quoted earlier, I don't know if I, I did quote this in the intro. Yeah, I was like, wait, did I end up quoting that at the end? Because it's in my notes. But I did quote the, the statistics about a visually impaired in the, in the states I got from um, the National Federation of the Blind, which is yes. at nfb.org. Are there any other glaringly obvious sites that I, that we should be mentioning? Or are those kind of the two main ones those in are, this those space? Those are the two. Yeah. That's okay. good. I just want to make sure I didn't leave anything yeah. out uh, glaringly obvious. Chris, thank you very much. Thank you, Matthew. Thea, thank you very much. You were very well behaved. We expect nothing nothing less. <laughs> uh, but this is really interesting. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank and you. And thanks for taking the time to come in today, especially when so much is going on in the city. Thank you. Thank I you really for giving me it. the opportunity. Thank I am, you. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, folks, that is all for today. Thanks again to my guests, uh, Guide Dog for the Blind CEO and President, Christine Benninger, Thea and Brad, who's over there in the corner helping us out. No live show next week or the week after or the week after or the week after because like I said, I'm going to take July and August off, but I will be back in the fall. So please, uh, probably in the beginning of September. So please stay in touch on social media for updates on when I'm back live. And uh, as always, thank you very much to WordSpace Studios for hosting and uh, sponsoring me. They, again, are at wordspacestudios.com. For more about me, my website is matthewfelix.com, and links to my social media, books, other podcasts, and all the rest can be found there. If you have any any comments, ideas for the show, or just want to say hello, I would love to hear from you at felixonair at matthewfelix.com. Thanks for listening and watching, and have a great summer.